0: Hello everyone, and welcome once again to the o rouge of podcast land. It's Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. We're off to Spa this weekend, one of the greatest challenges on the calendar for both man and machine. More than 70% of the lap is spent at full throttle, so it's a power track in the truest old school meaning of the words. And it's one at which Mercedes, with all of their engine modes still in place for one last hurrah, will expect to go very well and they're used to success. Yes, they are. Since the turbo hybrid era was introduced in 2014, Mercedes have won 94 of the 127 races that have taken place, a 74% winning percentage. And Mercedes high-performance powertrains, the sister company to the racing team, have an even better strike rate when it comes to pole positions. Their power units have taken 101 poles during the same period. 100 for Mercedes GP, and one for Mercedes-powered Williams back in 2014. That's 80% of the races on pole. And this week, my guest is the man in charge of Mercedes HPP, Andy Cowell. He's worked at the company since 2004, and he's been the engineering and program director since 2008. It was Andy and his team of boffins that oversaw the design and development of the all-conquering power unit that has rewritten f one stat books over the last seven years. And in what is a fascinating chat, you're going to hear how Andy did just that and why, after all of that success, he's decided to leave the team at the end of the year and look for pastures new. But Andy's F1 journey stretches further back than Mercedes. We'll also hear about the other teams he's worked for and how the art of developing a race-winning power plant has changed in the 30 years that he's been in the job. And I promise you, it's truly fascinating stuff, as are his thoughts on what makes Lewis Hamilton so good. But to start with, we spoke about the very different but vitally important challenge Andy was involved with in the early part of 2020. With hospitals in the UK and around the world needing to support patients with COVID-19, F1 engineers from several teams began Project Pitlane, an initiative to use F1 engineering to deliver much needed medical devices to the front line. Almost overnight, Mercedes high-performance powertrains went from building race engines to life-saving breathing devices. And Andy was right at the forefront.
1: It was an amazing project to be involved in. I think we all class ourselves as super lucky to be involved in that. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, the Melbourne Grand Prix was was cancelled on the uh, on the early hours of the Friday morning. And then over that weekend, there was the call from the government from Boris to uh, to the engineering community of the UK to to help out and to make ventilators. And there were lots of ideas coming along, lots of enthusiasm in our business in our industry to help out where we could. You know, with the Formula One season on hold and with this sort of tsunami of COVID cases anticipated in the country. Everybody wanted to help. And the main contact came through University College London, the engineering department there. On the Tuesday, late Tuesday, a call from Professor Tim Baker to Ben Hodgkinson, who's our head of mechanical engineering here. Um, They've known each other ages and ages. Ben's also a visiting professor there. So he went down on the Wednesday to a meeting there. And what UCL had realised was that a help before needing a ventilator could be a CPAP device. so a continuous positive airway pressure device that is a relatively simple device. Well, the device that we reverse engineered was a simple mechanical device, a jet pump. So powered by the oxygen supply that's in, in most hospitals, clip it into that oxygen rail and then pipes to a mask that provides pressure to inflate your lungs and oxygenated air. And um, uh, by Wednesday afternoon, Ben was talking to me quite excited, saying, Look, this is something that HPP can definitely help with. It's the style of product that fits up our sort of mechanical engineering capabilities. Uh, We sent another three engineers down Wednesday evening. We started researching, sort of Wednesday evening, sat on the sofa. Um, I was looking at the service manual for the device that we were reverse engineering a little bit later in the evening. I'd found a device on eBay, £50 buy on eBay in Nuneaton, which is where our operations director lives. So he picked that up Thursday morning and it was in our CT scanner by tea break on Thursday and then being tested on a test rig that one of our awesome development engineers had pulled together with the test engineering department and being disassembled, more inspection of the material and then put back together and then back on the test rig to make sure that we could successfully take it apart and put it back together and it still worked. And so a a reverse engineering process where we knew that for the medical approval for this device, we needed to show that we had exactly mimicked the device that was used 10, 15 years earlier. But, uh, and then the volume challenge, um, we realized, you know, this this was a, a COVID patients that I think the initial approach is that in hospital and then sort of nasal oxygen uh, you know the little clear plastic pipe with two prongs that goes up your nose that's that's step one and then CPAP is the next step which just helps inflate your, your lungs and the anticipation was that 50% of the COVID patients would recover from CPAP which then halves the number of people that need to go on to mechanical ventilation so it is sort of intermediary medical support and we, we quickly realized that it would be thousands that would be needed. So very early on we were saying to the operations team we're going to need thousands of these things and we're going to need to make them in days so it's a thousand per day get your head around that. So while we we're engineering we were also setting up the operations infrastructure to make thousands of these a day and the government ordered 10,000 and by the 15th of April we'd made the uh, the 10,000 flow generators. So from I think 15th of March Melbourne Grand Prix through to um, 15th of April and we'd made 10,000. So it was um, incredible. It sort of went in the, in the blink of an eye, those four weeks. All my friends and family were in lockdown. I was driving empty roads to, uh, to the factory to try and help out and try and think ahead on what do we need next? What will we need next for developing the system? And a few trips down to central London to um, UCL hospital for doing well patient tests. I avoided the poorly patient Um, test clinical trials Um, but the well patient tests where the clinicians that were were supporting this idea were actually the ones with the mask on which is quite nerve-wracking when some of the pressures were a little bit high we didn't pop anybody's lungs but I think we came close with some of the early tests but you know that that whole experience of driving down to London in Uh, with no traffic nobody about going into a hospital doing the testing and then coming back into the factory and working out what next what needs to be done it it was uh it was a hugely rewarding project
0: but you sound even now a few months on very energized by it did you find the whole thing quite exciting
1: um yes uh um exciting is is sort of you know the um that's what you get at Alton Towers, isn't it? You know, the, the, invigorating, you know. maybe yeah. a better word. <laughs> um, it, 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 it certainly had all our attention, all our focus, and you know, the hours that that there were many projects being worked on within Formula One, within that project pit lane umbrella, and the hours that everybody worked were immense. You know, I, I spoke to Bob Bell; he did some amazing work, and um, you know, he said, you know, this is the hardest working period of my life you know it's never put as many hours into it and i think everybody did that everybody you know when you're awake or even sort of half asleep you were thinking about the project that you were working on what could you do to make sure that the engineering was robust because you know this this is a medical device where you want to help somebody and you don't want that to go wrong you don't want to hurt the person by the application of this medical device whereas motor racing that's just a sport isn't it you know then there's always another race And there were many of the engineers that were saying, you know, that, crikey, these decisions are critical to life. Life is way, way more important than managing a DNF or getting pole position in a race.
0: Has the whole experience made you wonder what else F1 skills and tech could be applied to in the outside world?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there are already examples of technology organisations within Formula One helping in the medical sphere. I think McLaren Applied Technologies is um, is the clear example there, but absolutely the approach that the motorsport environment takes, where difficult technology development versus time is what we're all about, and the reliability requirements to win a championship against a tough opponent mean that your quality standards need to be really, really impressive. Your in-factory prove-out needs to be impressive and a lot of that is based using computer-aided engineering. The testing you can do is very restricted and therefore the instrumentation you put onto that test needs to be very robust and very well thought out so that you definitely get a conclusion. You know, the, the number of times I've said to engineers, I don't mind if the conclusion is the opposite of what you imagined. Yeah, So we've lost power rather than gained power. What I care about is getting a conclusion and swiftly because that's learning and that's progress. And so that pace and thoroughness and um, determination to, to, to unlock the technical challenge that's in front of you, I think can be applied to the medical world and, and all other industries, quite frankly. I think every single industry wants to solve the problem quickly. And that's right at the heart of uh, Formula One, I think, and motorsport.
0: I love the way that, you know, every two weeks you guys are all throwing mud at each other in the pit lane. And yet Project Pit Lane, everyone came together with a similar aim, a similar goal. You said you've spoken to Bob Bell at Renault and, you know, everyone working for the greater good. And it was an extraordinary, can I say, reversal
1: yeah, but you know, it's um, it's a species, isn't it? It's a species that comes together, and when there's a virus attacking our species, we do link arms and, and work together and try and do the best for uh, do the best for our planet and gang of people that, um, uh, and we pull knowledge together.
0: Well Andy look well done with that but let's talk racing now and uh, your career. You've been involved in the design and build of Formula One engines for 30 years now and can we just start with how has the job changed in that time?
1: I guess there's two aspects that the job's changed that it's a lot more sophisticated there's a lot more people involved in it a lot more computer-aided engineering a, a great deal more thoroughness and I think that's because of technology progress, engineering advancements, but also the, the value of the prize. 30 years ago, the value of uh, winning a race and the brand coverage felt less. And I, and I guess from my perspective, you know, joining as a, as a graduate engineer 30 years ago with a drawing board to work on and very much doing a broad range of engineering because there weren't many engineers in the sport then, and concluding at Mercedes-Benz as managing director where you definitely don't have a drawing board behind your desk. You don't know how to log on to Katia, but you're trying to provide the, the environment, the encouragement, the motivation for people to achieve a great deal. And often it's about helping people lift the motivation when it's not going so well and and setting that vision so um the industry's changed a lot um and my role within it has um has changed a lot as well do you
0: miss the design process
1: yes what bit of it do you miss Uh, i i love the challenge of a a clean sheet of paper with um limited restrictions and just thinking about the purity of, of of what you're trying to achieve keeping it simple and getting to the race quickly, which um, you need to think about the likelihood of success of your solution, the ease of manufacture, the ease of build, et cetera, that, that whole journey. Innovation's is the, the key thing, but innovation is when you've added value for our industry. It's when it's at the racetrack in qualifying and therefore going into the race. Then you've done your job. So I, I enjoy that whole journey. I'm a lucky chap i um get to um help steer the recruitment and development of the directors and the department heads and the decision making for where we invest stuff and you know the number of graduates and apprentices that are coming in and seeing all of that grow so it's um there's a huge amount of reward seeing individuals come in grow and deliver and and then you see them you see them walking around the factory. You know, three inches taller than they were before because they've got pride and they're delivering and and so on. That's um that's great to observe and see.
0: When you started, could you have envisaged something as complex as an MGUK or an MGUH? <laughs> um.
1: I guess that that that's, that sort of crept up on us. So it's a knows the answer. Thirty years ago, the, the the area that I first worked on was the pneumatic system. So the valve return spring, um, that was the first key area that I worked on, and I thought that was pretty complex, making that reliable for the Ford Cosworth V eight engine.
0: Is that the engine that that Schumacher took to the title in ninety
1: four? Yes, it was. It was it was well, it was the predecessor to that. Yeah so i worked on the valve train for that yeah it, it was it, fun times that was created in 93 when we were powering mclaren as well as benetton oh
0: complex politics there yeah that was fun this is the best scrap in the leading places that we've had all season no doubt about it so we're at the senna Famously experienced, of course, with pressure, but not always from behind. Schumacher, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, as I said earlier, but he's lost time, you see, by that attempt to pass. He's dropped back a little bit. What a nice fight this is, though. Both driving those identical Ford engines now. And this is Schumacher taking third place, as forecast, by J.Y. Stewart. Schumacher goes through into third position with a supreme passing manoeuvre and Ayrton Senna, who has gone from second to third, has now gone from third to fourth. Now, can Schumacher do anything about the Williams in front of him?
1: I was working on the McLaren project, so I came, I came off the graduate scheme. I was designing fatigue test rigs for connecting rods and suddenly got called into the chief engineer's office and asked to work as a integration engineer on the mclaren project which was exciting it was a it was a privilege to work with that team and uh, uh, i was working for a guy called chris willoughby who's now the commercial director at cosworth today great guy and um he and i were working on that so we were sort of counting the. Senna wins versus the 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 Benetton wins and feeling reasonably smug and seeing the the politics and the size <laughs> of the Ford logo getting bigger on the side of the McLaren car and, and stuff like that. But um, the tail end of that year, track testing, I was at Silverstone supporting a track test, wearing my red trousers during the day. Uh, the only engineer looking after two cars running at, at that track test and then driving back into Northampton to St. James Mill Road and then doing detailed design on the cylinder head for the 94 V8 engine. You you did everything. You didn't do it very well, (laughs) but you did your best at lots of things. That was quite fun.
0: When were the engine rigs the most rewarding? Because that actually sounds all-encompassing and quite fun because you're mixing a bit of racing and trackside adrenaline with the drawing board. And then I suppose we then started getting higher revving engines, didn't we? When in the sort of late 90s, was that an interesting challenge?
1: Yeah, it was. Um, As I say, I worked on, on the valve train and, you know, camshafts spin at half the speed of the crankshaft. And so it was very exciting on the cylinder head rig seeing the camshaft speed go to 10,000 RPM for the first time, which means crankshaft 20,000 RPM. Um, And the the challenge as as the valve train engineer was to always make sure that the top end of the engine could run quicker than the bottom end of the engine. So, you know, strange little bits of pleasure (laughs) seeing an extra digit come onto a digital display, but the significance of that, because, you know, when we first introduced the pneumatic valve system on the engine we were pleased to be at thirteen and a half thousand rpm so to enjoy the journey up to twenty thousand rpm crank speed was quite fun. But I think the the bit that I've particularly enjoyed is the is the period here at Mercedes, the journey of seeing Mercedes take a, a 100% ownership of the formula 1 organization and you know we created a v8 engine which wasn't brilliant in in 2006 but then with the recruitment of some more people and the strengthening of the organization became very strong in 2007 and then the rpm going up and up and up with that and yeah well over 20,000 rpm as we were racing
0: can we just break that down in layman's terms How do you increase the RPM? Because I assume that at the start of every season, you are at the limit of what you think is possible. So how do you then redefine that limit?
1: The regulations at that time were um, naturally aspirated engine, uh, fixed capacity. And so the way you create more power is by pumping more air through the engine. So more airflow through the engine. There was no restriction on the fuel flow rate. So the more air that you can pump through the engine, the more fuel you can put in, the more created power you can get out of the engine. The the quicker the engine's running, the shorter the period is for combustion. And so having very fast, good, controlled combustion was a a challenge there. But as you spin the engine quicker, uh, the friction goes up. And so the challenge for the top end and bottom end engineer was not only to hang on to everything that was spinning quicker, you know, stop the piston going through the cylinder head, but was to reduce the friction as well or to manage the friction. So the challenge was, yes, make it last at high RPM, but make sure that the frictional losses are not going up significantly and just stealing all the energy that's been created on the top of the piston so there was this sort of i guess three way competition the performance guys trying to make sure that they could have good strong combustion in shorter periods of time as the engine rpm went up the bottom end engineer making sure that uh, could hang on to the piston crankshaft designs were quite complex connecting rod designs were hard keeping the piston together, stopping the rings fluttering and so on. That was always a challenge. And the top end, again, just all about hanging on to the bits, making sure that the cam profile was followed by the valves and you weren't just launching the valve into the piston and so on. But the jewels of energy weren't just being consumed because the friction curve was going up. And so if you could create more power but not squander it all in friction, then the crankshaft power went up and then the driver's a happy man. Life was that simple
0: back then was it quite a lot of trial and error because i'm assuming your simulations and simulators were not as good as they are now
1: um there's still a little bit of trial and error um (laughs) but but there was there was more back then i think i think the industry's good at embracing um the best simulation that that's out there but you need to understand that time is important so there's no point having a piece of simulation you know if running a combustion simulation takes three months to run that's just way way too long you know it needs to be in days to run the simulation Um, so what accuracy can you get out of the simulation in that sort of time period and uh, motorsport has got a high level of vertical integration some great suppliers at which point if you can turn it into a shape the manufacturers will manufacture it for you quickly the volumes are small you've got the build capacity you've got the test rigs and you run it and there's there's many many times when i've said well we've done the simulation we think this is going to be a good direction uh, but we'll let the engine tell us yeah and so it's a great engine test that gives you the real answer as to whether you're uh, initial theory and whether the assumptions that you've put into the simulation and whether the setup of the simulation is robust enough and whether that all matches how exciting
0: so you put it all on the dyno and uh, away you go
1: yep still do that today
0: fingers crossed kind of
1: <laughs> you know there's an element of um we, we all know what's directionally correct sometimes we're surprised by some of the little subtleties Simulation has got better and better and better. And, and things like the, uh, the CAD systems are faster and will tolerate more complex shapes. Engineers naturally just work in the 3D world of CAD instead of the 2D world of drawing boards. And so the precision of the shape and the fit of everything is is, is way, way more intricate. And um, yeah, it's, it's managing the loads, it's managing the mass of the, the, the total product, but yes. You've got to do a test on the dyno.
0: Have you had some quite spectacular blow-ups on the dyno?
1: Yeah, yeah. there's um, probably most of the test cells have got dents in the walls from bits of engine coming out. And there's the odd test track as well in the world that's got the odd bit of tarmac missing as well from, um, uh, from, from engines that I've worked on.
0: Amazing. Final thoughts about your time at Cosworth. Um, that victory you had with Stuart at Nürburgring in 99 with Johnny Herbert, how close was that engine to what was going on at ilmore for example because obviously i'm sure you've studied what ilmore were doing since you've been at the company were you all barking up the same tree or were you all doing things quite differently in the late 90s
1: i think the majority of the footfall was going from cosworth to ilmore um you know including the the found the original founders i would say that ilmore with mercedes funding was helping promote that direction of flow um, but, you know, the, the, the fundamental that the, the Ilmore engine was was chasing was uh, a very neat package. So those engines were incredibly light, incredibly uh, enjoyable.
0: A lot of titanium, is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, and, you know, aluminium, beryllium pistons and so on. Ilmore, you know, with, with Mario's passion for technology development and Paul Morgan's joy of manufacturing infrastructure and the you know Roger Penske and Mercedes um, investment support a a hugely capable um, and adventurous company and they designed a a, you know a powerful and very compact engine um, exceptionally lightweight and that was you know that that was being enjoyed by the Mario Williams of um, by the Adrian Newey's of this world in terms of integrating them into a race car we observed the commentary so at Cosworth you know sat a, in, in Cosworth we've observed the commentary and there was a bit of an organization change there Nick Hayes you know was the chief engineer on that that engine for Stuart and we realized we were 30 kilos overweight and Nick got a, a chunk of aluminium machine to size that was 30 kilos with a handle put on it and he brought that into the engineering office and says guys we need to take this out of our engine because that's how much overweight we are oh and by the way we can't lose any power and we must finish the race that was quite an exciting time the investment was larger at Cosworth to go along with that so we'd gone from sort of the HB era um, into this CK era that was the prefix for that engine I was looking after the top end of the engine and we changed the valve train from tappet buckets to finger followers, which took a lot of weight out. We put carbon fibre cam covers on and we just we just all worked really hard to take the friction out, push the combustion performance up. And um, we'd all got that 30 kilo chunk of aluminium in the back of our heads. And, and Nick was a great motivator. Nick is, a, is an awesome technical engineer and motivator of a team of people and an incredibly hard-working engineer so he he led that project and delivered that.
0: How close did you get to pulling out the 30 kilos you needed just out of interest?
1: It smashed it i think we were, i think we were over the over the thing i can't remember the numbers but it was an incredibly light engine a guy called uh, byron payton was working on the bottom end of the engine and changed the whole architecture at the bottom of the engine to take weight out of the crankcase and so on i was working on the cylinder head with a group of people and the valve train actuation and everybody was excited because it was new and we were being challenged but we got the freedom to do new things and all of it was exceptionally late and not well proven out, not to the levels that we do today. So it was, um, yeah, there were a few scary moments that season, but it was was a lot of fun, a lot of fun.
0: Which of the engines you've worked on in your career are you most proud of?
1: Um, CK is one of them for that year, but I think the journey into 2014 has to be the power unit that I'm most proud of, to change the, the, the terminology, that was probably the biggest, overall challenge. None of us knew what that power unit was going to look like as we set off.
0: Can we talk about that journey then with that engine? I mean, what is the job list when you're confronted by a completely new set of regulations?
1: We were involved right from the early regulation setting. The FIA, um, Gilles Simon, invited us to to Paris to discuss. And um, the FIA for a couple of years had had this idea that we should go to an energy-based Formula. So instead of all running our engines quickly and chasing air through the engine and having high revving engines, we should have turbocharged direct injected engines that have got a hybrid electric propulsion element to them as well. But the fundamental that Gilles presented was that there'd be a fixed quantity of fuel for the race and there'd be a fixed flow rate that you could you know, pump the fuel into the engine. And so it was all about conversion efficiency.
0: A hugely different challenge for
1: you yes yeah but we we'd we'd always worked on efficiency but within the constraints that we'd had before yeah fuel flow rate wasn't a constraint rpm was a you know the the thing that you tried to work on and then when the rpm was capped then it was about combustion efficiency and friction reduction all of which are efficiency based and the KERS journey had been very much an efficiency based challenge to come up with something that would deliver the you know, 0.3, 0.4 of a second a lap advantage. And so the FIA were saying, right, you're going to have 100 kilos for the race, 100 kilograms an hour. Is everybody happy with that? Yeah. Okay. Right. Do we need any more regulations was the next question. All the engineers in the room said no, that's fine. We don't need any more regulations. Let's just go and have lots of fun. But then from a financial perspective and from a trying to Stoppers being fools working on stuff that doesn't actually make much of a difference to efficiency. Constraints were were put on, you know, so the number of cylinders, the V angle of the engine, even the bore size, and so on. We had a sequence of meetings to discuss dimensional constraints and system constraints. And throughout that, the head of thermodynamics here, a guy called Nigel McKinley, um, who's Incredible engineer. He was basically listing the technologies that were good for efficiency, and so I was pushing to say, "Look, these technologies ought to have some freedom. These other ones, maybe we can cross these off." And and all the manufacturers were doing that. All the ones that did actually enter, and others that were there considering whether they'd they'd enter or not. You know, there were sort of eight manufacturers.
0: Andy, I think that's a really important point. I was I was just going to say it wasn't Mercedes designing these rules was it coming up with these rules you were all in the room together with ferrari
1: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so i mean uh, ferrari renault volkswagen you know baretsky mario was there considering that cosworth were in the room so you know many many organizations with the um, or putting it in but you know at the end of the day it was FIA finally concluding on, on, on what should be done.
0: And how far in advance of 14 are we here? What what year are you talking about?
1: Well the, the initial set of regulations was going to be for 2013 so we set off with it being a 1.6 litre inline four engine with a target of, of 13 and those regulations were 2011 that they came out so we could start working. But the discussions, the regulation discussion started back in 2010. For me, one of the things you need to help an engineering group, you need to give them a a set of boundary conditions to work within. The FIA do that beautifully for us. But when the FIA haven't yet published, it's useful to come up with what you assume or you think the FIA will, will come up with. So we released here our best guess assumption on what the regulations would be. And we set a team off pulling together a single cylinder research engine based on that assumption. And that was, you know, as I was getting in the taxi, going to the airport from um, from the FIA meetings, you know, I'd be penning that and working out what I thought would be the regulations. And we, you know, it was a small team, not much investment to get a single cylinder going, which encourages people to start turning the simulations to that new heavily boosted high pressure lower rpm concept of this engine and direct injection and uh the inlet port characteristics and and so on and and then starts people designing specific bits and manufacturing those bits and building those bits and testing it and and learning and just completing that uh, that learning loop it just gets that going and the sooner you get that going on the project the sooner that the world goes from theory into hard experimental data.
0: Were you immediately convinced that this was the right way for Formula One to go, given the increased costs that were going to be involved, given the, the lack of noise? Was there ever a discussion just to continue with a V8, but make it more of a hybrid with more influence from KERS and things like that?
1: There were discussions of different concepts, different approaches. The, the, the desire of the FIA and the desire of the manufacturers is to try and align the mission of the Formula One powertrain engineer with that of the road car powertrain engineer and with the road car world heavily focused on grams of CO2 per um, 100 kilometers or whatever the country measure is, but, you know, vehicle efficiency, then... Coming up with a powertrain set of regulations that focus on conversion efficiency. All the time that we're using liquid hydrocarbon based fuels, the more you can do to get better conversion efficiency from that chemical energy into propulsion energy, the less you need to put in your tank each week, which is just a good thing. And so the FIA were very keen to get all the Formula One power unit manufacturers focus that way and so were the manufacturers i think things like noise we overlook that we could have done more to focus on that but then if, if we look at the noise i think it was the step change that was the problem it, it was the step change and the fact that gp2 had still got these ridiculously noisy <laughs> cars in in 2014 you know they sounded like a Bag of nails rattling around in a biscuit tin um, going around the track. Um, There's many engineers who've worked in Formula One in the V8 and the V10 era that have got damaged hearing. And there weren't many children sitting in the grandstands in that era either. There's, you know, just a whole load of drunk adults um, watching <laughs> watching the race. So I think, I think the sport's considerably more environmentally friendly and it's more of a, a family sport to go and watch now, which I think is, is a good thing. And fundamentally to have Ferrari, Renault, Honda, Mercedes all racing with devices that convert approximately half the chemical energy into useful propulsion energy is a great achievement. can
0: absolutely see that, but was it immediately obvious to you that the likes of Cosworth were no longer in the game? It was just too big and too expensive now?
1: Cosworth were very keen on the technology. In all those meetings, Cosworth were pro-technology, pro-openness. They saw that as an opportunity for them to spot the silver bullet and chase that and do well compared with manufacturers that would chase all the obvious things, but only get a little bit of performance from each of those obvious things. I traveled with um, Tim Rootsis to many of the meetings in in Paris. So um, Eurostar from St Pancras (laughs) into Garden or so many times, you know, he, he booked, two tickets for one of the meetings and then the next meeting i'd book the the two tickets and and we'd sit there and we'd chat about life the universe and and the fia regulations and and he was pro the technology to give cosworth that opportunity to differentiate i always used to assume that there was a sponsor in the background yeah there was a sponsor that wanted cosworth to do it uh, there were rumors that volkswagen audi would uh, would be that organization with a big pot of cash that would Uh, reinvigorate cosworth didn't happen which is a which is a great shame so it's a great company
0: imagine we're we're all getting on the plane to melbourne 2014 how much anxiety was there in in you in in your company about what was about to happen
1: (laughs) uh huge it had been an incredible journey uh in the in the summer beforehand we uh, we had a quality gate, and we realised that we were nowhere. We were struggling to do a single transient lap. We were struggling to pass off engines, and we'd got eight cars waiting for this power unit because we'd, we'd got four teams. And um, the whole company agreed to work more hours. Um, all our suppliers were doing more. We stopped everything that we classed as unnecessary. We just focused on Melbourne 2014s, and so the whole business had this sort of Melbourne 2014 is it that's what we've got to chase I guess track testing was properly scary going to Hareth for testing that was a, a scarier journey the unknown as to whether any of the cars are going to come out of the garage by the time we had done Haref and two lots of Bahrain testing um, we'd got more confidence but nevertheless getting on the flight to australia was a nerve-wracking moment we'd struggled to pass off all the engines we didn't have the amount of hardware in in melbourne that we'd we'd really like to have but in this competition it's it's about being the least bad you you look at all your you know you look at all your issues all your woes and it's about hoping that you've got the car that gets over the line first you know even if the driver's got to push the thing at times and so it's relative and if at that point we'd known that we were going to win the first six races, all of us would have said, no way, you know, we're going to finish the first six races. That would be, a, be in a, a huge achievement. Were you surprised by your dominance? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We, we were hearing rumours of, you know, Renault having good combustion efficiency, Ferrari doing well. You know, the first day of testing at Jaref, although we rolled out the garage first, Ferrari were, you know, they were doing pit stop pullaways we didn't have a calibration robust enough to do a pit stop pullaway you know we had to we had to roll gingerly out of the garage each time whereas they were doing lots of laps their powertrain sounded very sweetly calibrated so yeah that was a bit nerve wracking And, um, and you know we hadn't got all our cars running on the first day we've got wiring loom issues and and so on and you don't know where you are on performance you know going around a, a track like hareth you've got no idea at all on on performance it was really only when we went to bahrain and the second test in bahrain where we could see hang on a minute everybody must be trying by now and we we took a few performance updates to bahrain which gave us a good step forward and we could see then that our end of straight speed was looking reasonable Although I think the last day of the Bahrain test too, we, we blew up all the engines. You know, it was, it was, you know, one went just before lunch, another one just after lunch, <laughs> another one at the end of the day. So we were, uh, we'd got a few cat ones to look at. And that's what you focus on. You, you focus on your issues. You focus on challenges that you've got. You focus on the decisions that you wish you'd taken differently earlier in the, in the year. You never look at your successes, do you? Strange.
0: Well. What do you remember more? I mean, the countless wins. I actually added it up, Andy, and up to and including the British Grand Prix. You guys have won 93 of the 125 hybrid races we've had since the start of 2014. So is it the fear of failure rather than the lure of success that drives you guys on?
1: Uh, As a species, we've achieved a great deal, haven't we? Yeah, over the thousands of years, the human race has achieved a great deal. And that's not through having parties to celebrate the successes. It's through spotting the opportunities, spotting the things that would be useful, being creative and being tenacious. And, yeah, you do you dwell on the things that aren't yet working. You focus on getting better. The misfire for Lewis in Melbourne, lacked to the grid, Uh, a rubber tube had split. So the drop tube that goes over the spark plug and the coil drops into... Um, that had split.
0: You're going to tell me that costs about 50p or something?
1: Yeah, yeah. I dread yeah. <laughs> to think how much the failure cost, but you know, um, Lewis having that misfire and you know, having to make the call.
0: No Lewis, we need to retire, retire, uh, we need to save the engine, we need to save the engine.
1: I've got no idea how that engine will run on five cylinders, uh, We may well have got points. But you know, at the time, you just have to make the call. No, bring him in. Sorry, that's a DNF.
0: They came into the race as championship favourites. It's Nico Rosberg who's going to confirm that favouritism, and he comes home to win the Australian Grand Prix for Mercedes. Their one hundredth
1: Mercedes-powered victory in the Formula One World Championship. Rosberg takes the season opener by a long, long way. I was super lucky, you know, I went up onto the podium to collect the constructors. Andy Cow, how, how fitting that the man in charge of the power unit build
0: as we go into this new era of new engines, hybrid engines, and Formula One is up there to receive the constructors' trophy. And now, for the first time this season, let's go for the champion.
1: But if you look at my face, I'm miserable as sin. All I can think of is the DNF of, um, well, one was I was thinking, don't fall off. Yeah, it's quite a high, it's a long way down, that would be really embarrassing. But the main bit of, you know, misery in my face was Lewis's DNF. And he's like, shit, I wonder what's going on there. We've got a problem. How are we going to fix that? So you don't look at the success around you. You think about the issues that need to be worked on. And then Canada, you know, two issues. Um, first time that his duty cycle had really been stressed. Failure of a small component in the module. But, you know, we let Red Bull win a race. And the most painful bit was having breakfast on the Monday morning when my my young son said to me, why did you let Red Bull win? (laughs) What's
0: fascinating is hearing you remembering. You've got this encyclopedic knowledge of the failures. I almost get the feeling you could remember all of them over the last... Not that there have been that many. Nobody listened to
1: that podcast. (laughs)
0: <laughs> look when you compare the power unit of 2020 to that one in 2014 where have been the biggest it's game? a little bit
1: everywhere you know we were at 44 percent thermal efficiency then now we're racing at over 50 the reliability's come up a chunk mass is probably uh, we're probably a bit heavier you know we had the nice slim line exhausts in 2014 weren't great for power but we're good for packaging and mass Um, but a little bit of everything just you know the base fuels got better the combustion efficiency is way way better friction loss is down heat rejection managed better to make sure that more of the energy goes to the turbine wheel electric machines way way more efficient inverter more efficient battery more efficient and understanding an order of magnitude better and the way that energy is deployed so managing you know maximum power as soon as the driver's got enough grip at the rear of the car and then blending that off towards the end of the straight to look after energy around the lap so that whole control of energy recovery energy deployment failure analysis manufacturing expertise you know things like balancing the turbo we, we, we didn't go for an easy solution in terms of the turbocharger we went for one that we thought from a vehicle package perspective would give an advantage. But that turbocharger is not easy to put together and to balance. And so our, our hit rate on manufacturing and assembly all the components is an order of magnitude better. So it's a skill set across every single department in the business has got an order of magnitude better. And then, you know, when you put the championship winning 2014 engine next to the championship winning 2019 engine, you think, crikey, that's, that's a tremendous change you know it's it's sort of stone age going to iron age you know it, it's a dramatic shift just looking at it from the outside let alone look inside the guts of the thing
0: in terms of sheer grunt how much have you found in that time i can't
1: remember that number
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh can you give us a, okay you're not going to give it to can you give us a percentage increase i think it's just it would be yeah, fascinating I mean, to w- know 44
1: percent thermal efficiency up to 50 percent thermal efficiency in terms of the continuous, you know, zero energy change in the battery condition. That's over 30 kilowatts.
0: And while we're talking grunt, can you just explain, everyone talks about party mode. You call it strap two, I think. The rest of the, we all call it party mode. What does that actually mean? It's just the mode
1: where we're delivering the most power to the crankshaft. So everything is working not for looking after storing energy. So the ignition of the engine is running... At the point where combustion is about to be unstable, the MG UK is delivering the full 120 kilowatts. The pressure in the exhaust is as low as possible, so the engine is delivering as much as possible, and so the battery state of charge is dropping. Yeah, it's it's dropping at an alarming rate, and so it is the point where you where you're giving it everything. And yeah, over the years the engine last longer and longer in that in that mode it's not a race mode it's a it's a qualifying mode it's an overtake or defend mode you're always going to use it for one or two laps in q3 Uh, you're going to use it at the start hopefully you don't need to use it the rest of the race
0: you're leaving hpp at the end of the year how difficult a decision was it for you? Uh, a, a big
1: one mercedes is a company that i'm hugely proud to have worked for the people here are an incredible group of people and i'll miss them but it's time for a change it's um, 16 years it feels like a, a long period of time doing largely the the same thing and um, I, I like that you know at the start I mentioned about you know I enjoy the clean sheet of paper challenge of design I think my personality likes the thrill of being dropped into something that's that's challenging and, and scary
0: So did Project Pit Lane influence your decision about
1: your own future it helped confirm that my decision was the correct one so i um i handed my notice in in january and project pitlane uh popped up in march and that journey uh you you know project pitlane was a (sighs) go on have a go at something different that lit the bonfire in my belly and got my head thinking every second of the day about cpaps and about anything else that project pitlane was working on and that's the challenge that I want going forward. I do class myself as having one of the best jobs on the planet at the moment. A lot of my friends, and especially my mum, thinks I'm as mad as a box of frogs. to am <laughs> my notice in. Everybody's saying, well, what are you going to do next? What are you going to do next? And I'm not 100% certain yet. But hopefully it will, um, it, it will give me a nice big challenge. And hopefully I can help companies and organisations and, and ultimately people.
0: You really haven't made up your mind where you're going
1: yet. You don't believe that, do you?
0: Well, (laughs) sorry to be everybody, but, you know, you know how the silly season usually focuses on drivers, but you're such an influence. You've had such an influence on the success of HPP and and the whole Mercedes Grand Prix team that where you're going is almost as juicy as, you know, is Lewis Hamilton going to resign, for goodness sake? I mean. Any phone calls from Italy, from France, from Japan, from Gaydon in Warwickshire in the UK? You're looking at me down the Zoom. lens. help me,
1: Tom. What what would you think I should do?
0: I don't know. I I really, whatever interest you had. And and I I think that's the key thing. Yeah. Would you miss Formula One if you didn't stay in Formula One? And what would you miss about Formula
1: One? Right from the age of five, motorsport's been my, you know, huge, huge part of my life so motorsport will always be a part of my life but what part that's the thing to sort out i guess 12 um, month notice period and you notice in january which was contractual timing rather than anything else i was keen you know talking to ola talking to marcus schaefer in stuttgart i was keen that the transition for hpp was managed for the best interests of hpp I was very keen that, that Howell took over from the beginning of July. Marcus and Ola asked me to stay until the second power unit was, was installed to try and help out, which takes us through to September. So, you know, I've got September, October, November and December to, to make a decision and, um, yeah, make a call then.
0: You were talking about motor racing being, motor sports being part of your life since the age of five. I can't really remember what I was into at the age of five, but you clearly can. What are your earliest memories? I, I guess
1: uh, my dad building racing cars in the garage, me going out, my mum being frightened to death as I'm wielding a hacksaw, going a sprint and hill climbing with my dad at a very modest level, meeting amazing people, you know. And, and I and I remember, you know, polishing the car. Young kids around racing cars is is not the safest. <laughs> Homemade racing cars, and so you know we were given the job of polishing the car. You know, so I remember vividly the tin of green turtle wax polish and the polishing cloth, and you know you polish the car, and then you get the job of setting the tyre pressures, and then you, you know, you're going to get the times, and and just that whole environment really, and that's what you do at weekends, and then you scratch your head about what you're going to do ahead of the next event, and you try to get better, and and it's about personal bests. I think that was the that was the key thing you know what's your pb how are you doing against your pb and the camaraderie as well you know something goes wrong everybody's in there to help
0: so back then the world was your oyster you could have gone down the chassis side you chose the engine slash power unit side why did you choose that side because you even i think were part of the reynard scholarship back in your uni days so you, you've obviously flirted with that side of the business but chose the yeah, other
1: um uh, it was my, my father spotted the reynard scholarship scheme and i did it as a year out from university you know met some great people at reynards and that were on the scholarship scheme went back to university sorted my degree out and um, applied for jobs and you know i applied for lots of conventional engineering jobs until going to reynards i didn't dream that there was an engineering job for me in motorsport and um I got, I guess, the short list for me to choose from was a, a £6,000 a year offer from Adrian Reynards to go back to his scholarship scheme, or a £13,000 a year graduate placement at Cosworth, and it was those numbers, <laughs> the difference in those two numbers, that and the fact that um, Cosworth was a more of an established engineering organisation that had got something called a graduate scheme, and the IMEC-EMPDS accreditation. And I thought, well, I'll go there for three or four years and become a, a professional engineer and then maybe go into racing cars. So as I joined Cosworth, I was not classed myself as knowing a thing about the engine. Um, engine's what you, you do a little bit of work on, but largely you buy the engine in, you, you create the car. And so I've always promised myself that um, I'll get out of engines at some point and go into the chassis side. Aha!
0: Exclusive! <laughs> At some point. <laughs> I've got two more topics. Can I ask you to do the impossible? Because you have worked with the greatest drivers of the modern era. We talked about Senna. We've mentioned Schumacher. You're obviously working with Lewis Hamilton now. In your McLaren-Mercedes days, obviously, we had Mika Hakkinen in there. Common threads between that list of people I've just mentioned?
1: Um who's the best this is the best you know (laughs) outstanding natural talent and and that inquisitive curiosity and tenacity he will push for progress he will push for people to hear his viewpoint in a nice way and as an individual he's not competitive to the point of being nasty and there are some individuals on the planet that push competitiveness to the point where it bubbles over to just not being sporting
0: how big a part has he played in the team's success?
1: Huge. Lewis is uh, a true sportsman and a motivator of the team. You know, an outstanding talent. His exemplary performance makes everybody look up and go, mm, I need to be at that level. I need to be operating my game at that level. But his, his little comments, you know, his comments in debriefs a couple of years ago in one of the debriefs after the race, I was in the factory here. And he says, oh, you know, it feels like we're a little bit down. Are we down on power, guys? What does the GPS say? And then he says, Andy, I know you're listening. We need more power. Those little messages uh, are awesome at pulling the team together. Andy's sportsmanship, he doesn't want to get away with things. He wants to win fair and square. He just wants the sports field to be level and to be fair. And I think that's what he wants in Formula One and outside of Formula One. And um, I admire Lewis tremendously as a as an individual and as a as a racing driver.
0: That's fascinating. Look final topic is on the subject of diversity. There's a welcome drive towards diversity in society in Formula One within your organisation and I just would love to get your thoughts on how we get more minorities interested and involved in
1: engineering. I think it's a a, a really important topic, and I think we need to get into schools, we need to get into homes, we need to help people realise. I'm fortunate that I grew up with motorsport. I didn't go to posh schools, I went to the local comprehensive school, and I never dreamed that there was a career in in motorsport I I didn't really realise. So how do, we, how do we get all those kids at school? How do we get all the 11-year-old kids and their parents to realise that there are careers in, in motorsport? And we need to go to schools that are inner-city schools, not the schools that are feeding into the posh independent schools and into the Russell Group universities. Those organisations have great careers officers in place already that are funded. I think we need to get into the schools that don't have the... Careers officers, we need to get into the areas of the country where they just don't realise what the opportunities are. And I think that sort of, you know, from year seven onwards, those 11 year olds, um, how can we help them through their year seven, eight, nine education to the point that when they pick their GCSEs, they do pick things that provide them the opportunity and they don't just see mathematics and physics as something boring that all the geeks do, they actually see it as a as the opportunity to provide an interesting career, an interesting, vibrant career. Engineers provide the tools for the world, the infrastructure for the world, and I think it's it's a great profession, and I think it would be awesome if Formula One can go in and touch those schools and enthuse those school teachers that then enthuse those... Children, and we all put effort and energy into going to talk to them and showcasing and giving them work experience and so on.
0: So, it requires people like yourself going into these schools and actually lecturing, telling people about the opportunities. Is that what I you're saying? I think so.
1: And, 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 it, and it's putting it across in the right way, isn't it? You know, with with, with all these messages, it's you know, how do you, how do you land it in such a way that it's the explanation is put at the right level and, and in the right sort of context. And um, I think that's something Formula One can do because, you know, as soon as you say it's Mercedes Formula One or it's Formula One, you know, a project pit lane type project, it will instantly capture the attention of the kids. And then if the opening sentences are interesting and then it's like you could do this, but you do need these subjects, you need to get to know these sort of techniques and these topics. And then the world can open up in these sort of environments and and it's not just motorsport you know the aerospace industry and the you know if you if you look at what's going on in electric cars multi-planetary species challenge you know the spacex the tesla the all these type of industries and, and there are companies doing that sort of technology in this country there's countless opportunities but people don't realize and people don't realize and they they tend to have a negative feeling on their own confidence and their own opportunities so i think we should get in there and we should do that sort of stuff
0: andy thank you so much what a great chat really appreciate your time thanks tom i hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as i did andy's an inspiration and as is the case with so many great leaders He's brilliant at breaking down even the most complicated issues into manageable bite-sized chunks. And in this way, he reminds me of Mercedes' technical director on the chassis side, James Allison. When you hear the way Andy speaks, it's little wonder they've been so successful. We can only try and guess what he'll do next. I think it's fair to assume that Andy's had offers from every F1 engine manufacturer he's too good not to. But does he even want to stay in Formula One? Time will tell, but whatever he chooses to do, I hope he continues to share his passion for engineering with the younger generations and inspires boys and girls from all backgrounds to become engineers. That's not only what Formula One needs, it's what the world needs. Look at Project Pitlane. Andy, many thanks for your time. It was great to chat and thanks too to Mercedes for their help with setting it up that's almost it for this week but before i go let's have our weekly rummage through the virtual mailbag and i love what you had to say about last week's show with johnny dumfries you enjoy the occasional throwback to the 80s don't you jamie willis said this thanks for another brilliant interview i was lucky enough to be at brands in 87 for the thousand kilometer race you discussed what a drive dumfries was seriously quick Interesting that Chiva said he made a mistake not taking a Ferrari test role, and Dumfries said his mistake was accepting one. Well, Jamie, yes, that's a really good point. And I think you've just summed up Formula One in a nutshell. Timing is everything. We also had this message from F1 travel guru, Lyndon Swainston. Hi there, Lyndon. The first time I met Johnny Dumfries, she says, I thought he was the truckie at Dave Price Racing. His language was horrifying and he had a broad South London accent. I was shocked to be told he was an Earl. Yes, Lyndon, Johnny certainly went a long way to leaving his aristocratic roots behind him in the early days. He didn't use them to get ahead, quite the opposite, in fact, as his days as a painter and decorator will attest. And finally, let's hear this from Steve Deeks, who says, Tom, Johnny Dumfries, best guess yet. He's James Hunt-esque and reminded me of why I started racing all of those years ago. Great guy, zero bullshit, very funny, and I miss that era of racing. Try and do Johnny Herbert. Steve, I hadn't thought of Johnny Dumfries as James Hunt-esque, but there are similarities, you're right. And by the way, I've already spoken to Johnny Herbert. Have a look through the back catalogue, because I think you're going to enjoy that one. Well, folks, that's it for this week. But please keep your messages coming because I read each and every one of them. And as ever, I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Thanks for listening. And we're looking forward to having you back next week for another conversation with another big Formula One guest. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out.